Hello, welcome to How to Write a Play. I'm Alex. I work for the Old Fire Station Arts Centre in Oxford, and we're currently running a playwriting course with Triple Olivier Award winner Mike Bartlett. Stay tuned for Mike's advice, writing tips, writing exercises, answers to questions from listeners, and our thoughts on the theatre world in 2023. Today we're talking about plays on screen. Mike, what are we covering in the course? Meaning, how you get meaning in your play. Then a very quick, accelerated version of how you start to form a play and put it together. Coming up at the Old Fire Station this week, we have Jen Brister again on the 1st of June. She's incredibly popular and she's sold out, but you might be able to get returns. So do contact the box office. Then on the 2nd of June, we have our second Art Friday, which is out on Gloucester Green. It's independent artists and makers and cultural venues and us out there on Gloucester Green Outdoor Market, having a great time and telling the world about what we do. And then on the 3rd of June, we've got Isabel Farah Ellipsis, which is a comedy show about how you can do therapy when you're a comedian. And the problem is that comedians are always trying to be funny. And Isabel Farah realised that she spent all of her therapy sessions trying to be funny yeah, and trying to make it into a comedy set and how that's not actually great for your mental health. So our news topic this week, they have just announced, as of yesterday when we're recording this, that they are making a movie based on the play Prima Fasci, which originally starred Jodie Comer and is now starring Cynthia Erivo, who's amazing. But my first thought when they announced that was, how on earth do you make that play Mm. into a film? Because it's a one-person show. It's all being told completely from the perspective of one person over the course of about an hour. So I wanted to ask you, as someone who's turned a play into a film, what that experience was like. So it's hard to make films of plays. Personally, I think they often feel like filmed plays or they turn out absolutely disastrously, like Dear Evan Hansen, the recent musical adaptation to film. But I wanted to ask what advice you had for someone who wants to adapt a play to the screen and doesn't want it to just film like a filmed play or who has a story but doesn't know which medium it's best for, whether that's film or play. As with a lot of stuff on screen, so much of it is in the hands of the director. One of my favourite films straight off is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, the Mike Nichols film of the play. It's just a great film. You don't feel that you're watching a play on screen. You just feel like you're watching a film. And I also loved his version of Angels in America that he did. And there are scenes in that which are just dialogue, but he really trusts that you're going to listen as well as watch and that you engage with it in an intellectual way. He really trusts the source material, and I think that's really successful. He's just a very good director. I think lots of things can go wrong with anything you put on the screen. There's so many different stages of it. There's so many different agendas. It's so expensive to make things for the screen that you have a lot of people giving notes and things like that. That's, I think, one of the biggest things that can go wrong is you do a play normally the group of people giving notes it's not going to be that big it's normally going to be under 10 once you get into any work on screen it's going to cost upwards of a million pounds an hour a lot more than that now actually that sort of money comes with a lot of people who have views on how it should be spent and what it should be and i think that's more often the difficulty is how to take a singular vision whether it's the directors or the writers and get it to the point of the final cut and what audiences see and that's true with all work on screen but i think with a play Often the consequence of that is not trusting the innate drama and the characters and wanting it to be more visual or wanting it to be more genre or wanting it to be more something else. And then you take the original thing and turn it into some other property. So there are some that are very successful and some some that aren't. 
in terms of my experience with King Charles III when we did that, we sort of deliberately wanted to do it for the BBC and we deliberately wanted to try and keep the company of actors together that had done it for two years and let them do it on screen. The project wasn't just a play, it was a sort of Shakespearean company. So we wanted Tim to be Charles, Tim Pickett-Smith to be Charles and, and then most of the other actors did transfer onto the screen. I brought it down to 90 minutes from two and a half hours and... You know, it was hard to sort of bring all the scenes down in length. But what happened was, once we got shooting them, the actors would often say to Rupert Gould, who was directing, and a director of the stage version, can we just do the stage version? Since we've got all the cameras here, can we just do the full scene? So then they would end up shooting the whole scene anyway, even though I'd spent hours trying to cut it down. And then we ended up really making the film in the edit, as you always do anyway, but with lots of material. So that was the advantage of having the stage actors, is they all knew the whole thing in their bones. Once you got the cameras up and rolling, you could shoot a lot of material very quickly. It's just a much bigger mass market and the budgets are much bigger. So you've got all of that to bear in mind. So you didn't like Dear Evan Hansen. What did you like? What's your favourite adaptation from theatre to film? I think the best one ever is very recent, which is controversial. I think it's Tick, Tick, Boom, which is a Jonathan oh, Larson yeah. musical one-man show, which Lin-Manuel Miranda has filmed for Netflix. Uh, was that a stage? Uh, yeah. So okay. he wrote Rent, but yes. before he wrote Rent, his sort of run-up to writing Rent was Tick, Tick, Boom, which was his solo show that he did on stage and has been revived a few times on Broadway as a solo show. Yeah. And Lin-Manuel Miranda did just the most amazing adaptation of it, and I don't think you would know that it was a play. I think it's so well done. It has roots in theatre, and it, you're aware as a framing device they're doing a play. But I think if you watched it, you would be quite surprised that they'd managed to turn yeah. a solo theatre show into something that feels very lived in and feels like it is a, a drama. Yeah. I mean, there's a thing here, isn't there, as well, which is I find interesting, is that we're in the world of single camera screen work. Everything is made with one camera and you shoot certain shots and certain directions and you edit it together and the performance is made in the edit. It's not theatre, it's not made in the moment. But there was a world of screen work from the 60s through to the 70s and 80s where it was a weird mix of both, which is you had actors who would rehearse, go into a studio and then have multiple cameras filming their performance and then it would be edited together live. And I'm a bit of a geek for that stuff. I love, if I want to watch, and particularly since I've had kids and can't get out to the theatre as much, I kind of find myself, because none of it's on streaming services because it's so deeply geeky that no one would want to watch it but you can order the dvds of like all these bbc productions multi-camera productions of you know granville barker plays or noel coward plays or shakespeare's with amazing actors doing amazing performances and you get no hiding that it's a play i find it more watchable than a literally a filmed play in a theater because the actors they're not performing to the back of theater they're performing for the cameras so it's a weird sort of mix of the two but i quite like that because the actors in charge of the performance not the edit that's my tip for any theatre geeks out there, is go and order your geeky BBC DVDs, whatever they are. What are we covering in the course this week? We're going to start thinking about writing a play by the end of this course, or certainly coming off the end of this course. And I think one of the things that is slightly misunderstood about plays sometimes is meaning. Is often people, dramaturgs, literary managers, people developing plays will say, what are you trying to say with this play? Or what's the meaning of this play? What are you doing with this play? And I find that a very difficult question because if you look at all the great plays of the 20th century, they're not doing one thing. What's, what's Chekhov doing with the seagull? 
He's doing so many things. People have written very long books, multiple books about what that play is doing. And it's the same with Hamlet. It's the same with almost all the great plays of the canon. Is that all resonant with meaning? So we're going to do an exercise where everyone in the group is going to write down a person, a want, a location, a political and economic or social theme, and an existential theme. We're then going to put them in five hats and everyone's going to randomly pick out five of those things. Everyone's going to have a person, a want, a location, a political, economic or social theme and an existential theme. All unrelated to each other. All unrelated to each other. So they're all randoms. So this is like how David Bowie did lyrics in the 70s or whatever. And then with those random things, that's the play. And so then we're going to try and make notes and think how could these things be connected? Neil Gaiman talks about an idea is happens when two ideas crash into each other. And I think that what we're going to find is that actually the process of going, you know, you've got Susan, who's a woman in her mid-30s, and the location is the North Pole, and the political economic theme is disparity of wealth. And put those things together, you go, well, they seem very distant, but actually that's the job, right? How are they going to connect and where can meaning be found in between these things? And I think that's a good exercise in separating out the idea of this is my personal play that I really must write from me to the craft of discovering meaning in something. That meaning doesn't just come from you out. It can be read into something and then you can exist in dialogue with the thing you're writing. You read it, you find meaning in it, you then write into that and then you find more meaning in it. And so it gathers meaning rather than it all just coming from you. And linked with that is the thought of this came from an exercise that I did when I went to university and I did theatre studies. And on the first weekend we were there, all us, us freshers, we did a weekend workshop where the resident theatre company there, which was Unlimited, who are an amazing theatre company, they said in previous years that group has done a piece over the workshop based on Beckett or Brecht. Then they present it to the older students who are there on the Sunday night. And they said, this time with you, we're going to do a piece which is all about postmodernism and we're going to put together lots of completely meaningless moments and show them to the audience and then see what they say because we think it'll be funny. So we came up with this whole show of these strange dance moments, text, all sorts of stuff. And then we showed it to the audience and the audience went, I loved it. I loved how it spoke about death and I loved how it, you know, and they found all this meaning in something that was, in terms of how we created it, completely meaningless. The purpose of the exercise was to show that meaning actually resides in its reception in the audience rather than in what your intentions are. So we're going to look at that. And then we're going to take that idea and we're going to talk about different styles of dialogue. We're going to try writing dialogue with each line only being allowed one, two or three syllables. And then dialogue where we're going to imagine there's four people at a middle class dinner party where they can interrupt and overlap each other, but they're talking in quite a performative heightened way. And then we're going to have a go at iambic pentameter, which is 10 syllables in a line with the rhythm each I am. And an I am is du-du. So the second syllable is emphasised. So it makes 10 syllables over the line. And this is the Shakespearean form of verse. And we're going to have that just to play around with those three different ways of writing dialogue to demonstrate and explore. Sometimes people come to write plays and they think, all I'm trying to do is just write how people talk. And of course, actually, if you transcribed actual speech, it'd be very different to dialogue. Dialogue is a style decision that's going to be about what the sound of your play is, what the world of it is, what it feels like, what's the class of the characters, how do they think, how do they articulate themselves. And so we're going to say with this idea, this random idea that we've got with all these things, what's the right appropriate style of dialogue for this? And then we're going to look at with particular 
emphasis on trying to find the moment for the main character in this story as we're developing it over the workshop. What's the moment of the maximum drama? Perhaps one way of articulating it is if this was made into a movie and that main character, the actor, was winning Best Actor Oscar, what's the clip they would use with the maximum amount of acting and drama happening? And, of course, it might be like a sort of shouty Stella moment, like, you know, a sort of heightened acting thing. But it could also just be a complete moment of silence when something drops in the room and it changes everything. But looking for that maximum moment of drama, because that's probably going to come shortly before the end of your piece of work. And so we're going to keep on just talking and working and trying to find over the course of the second half of the workshop, what's the shape of this piece? Is it two acts? Is it five acts? Does it move around to different spaces or is it all contained within one place? And then we'll see where we get to. And I think the purpose of this is to sort of go how in an accelerated way, as you're planning the play and redrafting the plan and working out what it could be, you're looking for what's creating meaning in this play. What's the most interesting thing it can be? And all of the aspects of dialogue and character and shape of the evening are all working together in service to this meaning. And the meaning then you want it to emerge. You want it to come out and go, what's the existential theme? What are the politics? What are the economics? And the more you work on this and the more you can do it in the plan, the better. Because then if you change it, it's going to take two minutes to change your plan. Whereas if you've written the whole play, it's going to take a long time to change that. I think that's sort of the final thing about today is take a plan like this and keep on working it and redrafting it and road testing it and going, is this the most it can be? Is this feel right for the character? Have they got a good journey? Are they all speaking in the right way? Are they motivated to speak? Are they motivated to act? And all of this you can test out in a plan before you even get into writing dialogue. I've got some questions from listeners. Charlie has written in and says... You talked about how screenwriting is more about story and plays focus more on dialectic. How, if at all, does this distinction change your approach when starting a new project? Well, I think for everything that I write, I do try and think of like what's the underlying question that it's discussing. I feel like that's a way of implicating the audience and going, this is relevant to you. This is going to give you something to think about. Then I suppose it's in a play, I think about how to more dramatise that in terms of the motivations of the characters that's going to create energy on stage in that room. Some moments that are going to happen, big arguments or devastating revelations. And I look to those. Whereas I think on screen, what I'm looking for is what's going to be a captivating story a journey that the character is going to go on to articulate this meaning or through this meaning. And I think both forms want both. But I think what I'm learning as I do more of both of them is that on stage, the emphasis is those moments and the dialectic moments and the, and the discussion and what's going to enable that to be felt and gutsy within the characters. And when they come on stage, the actor's really going to have something to play and to motivate them to do things on screen. It's what's the narrative drive, because that will tell us what the next scene is and how the camera should be operating and whose point of view are we looking at. Those are all narrative concerns. So how does the story help to articulate the subject matter? So it's emphasis, I think, on what comes first. Becca asks, what happens when you disagree with a change that a cast member or director wants to make to a script? Ooh, a lot of people have that experience, don't they? Any rehearsal room can be a very collaborative space, can't it? And that's what you really want is that you'll get on. And that if there is some point of contention or an opinion that people have is that you can basically just try it out or you can talk and you're all working in the same direction to go what is best for this piece of work. And that the sort of 
roles and the hierarchy only kicks in at the point at which you go in the end this is what it has to be so the director and the writer can come to that conclusion but of course the other thing is in a rehearsal room there are also people are protective of their role and egos and things like that i think that's part of the role of the director is to set up those relationships early i think any good director will generally in the first week try and in some way flush out any actors sort of concerns about the text in some way and certainly with leading actors sometimes i've had quite long meetings with them before we started rehearsals to go over all of that so that you're not doing that in a sort of more public way that you can really get into those conversations and certainly i feel like a director should have if they've got pre-existing thoughts again you should have those before you're in the rehearsal room and just talk about it more and more and try it out and sometimes it's like often the question is related to the resistance the very resistance in the play that is the most interesting thing. So Edward Bond does this exercise where I think it's something like there's a chair and you have to move the chair without touching it. And then everyone in the group tries to move the chair in different ways without touching it. And then the point of the exercise is that the effort of trying to do that is the interesting thing. Whereas if you solve it, it's not interesting. And I think that's sometimes the very problem that people try to solve is actually often the remarkable thing about the play or the thing that you really need to interrogate and get into. So yeah, it can be tricky, but it can also be the point of the most creativity. I spoke to director Maddie Moore, who is doing our Christmas show this year. She has a question which is in macro about the whole state of theatre. And she says, you don't have to answer this. Okay. Um, the National Theatre are doing a play about Gareth Southgate and the England men's team. Hmm. They lost... Why aren't they doing a play about the lionesses who actually won? Well, that is a really good question. I'm not the person to... I did. I neither am writing, directing or programmed that play. So I'm going to um, take the fifth on that. Cause, Rufus um, Norris, if you'd like to contribute, let us know. <laughs> Janet has written in with two technical questions. Number one, is the general rule really that when writing a play, one page is the same as one minute of speaking? So I go on what I learned when I did radio plays, which is about 10,000 words is an hour. I find that pretty reliable, actually, because generally if you write more stage directions, then it suggests more action happening. The other thing is if you write short staccato lines, you're going to get through a page really quickly. But obviously, if you get through it more quickly, it's still less words. So the word count I find more useful. 10,000 words an hour tends to work for me. And if your character or your story is based on a book, are there any copyright issues there? For your own pleasure, you can adapt it. But as soon as you want to show it to people or people are paying to see it, then yes, any book would be under copyright for an author. I believe this is true, but please consult your lawyers and legal representatives. I believe it's that in this country, the author needs to have been dead 70 years and then their work falls out of copyright. So I think H.G. Wells has just passed that point and so you will see a, a raft of hg wells adaptations winnie the pooh went this year winnie the pooh year. yeah there you go if the writer has not been dead 70 years then you will have to engage with their representatives we've had an email from alex writing about ai and he says it doesn't make me feel hopeful for the future when big film studios can already conjure up digitised performances of long dead actors, when AI can mimic human voices fairly accurately, when it can write moderately passable plays that can be edited by humans or brought to life by a creative team, 
when it can already do this, where is the fundamentally human role in art? Is it optimistic to say we'll always want human created work? Will we, honestly? I, the thing that gives me hope is I think people said this when the, the camera came out, didn't they? They sort of said, well, we're not going to have any drawing or painting or because we're not going to need it. Because, But of course, that misses what the difference between representation and an art. You love to see a painting that a human being has done with oils or a sculpture that's not like real life because it's articulating something from the human being. We haven't given up on that because we've got 3D printing or photography. I still think we're going to want the human expression. I think that's going to be the thing of value. It's the craft that's going to change, I think. It's the how long it takes to make something or who makes it. But the intention and the decisions of art, I think, will absolutely remain because that's why we love art, isn't it? That's what we all adore about it. It's, it's connected with what we're doing in the session, actually, is the creation of meaning and the resonance of meaning and watching something and feeling like there's this human connection and understanding and intention behind what's happening on stage, and particularly in theatre when it's real human beings doing it. So I think there's going to be big changes, and I think some of them will be quite quick and shocking. But in terms of theatre as an art form, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. Are you, are you hopeful? I'm hopeful. Yeah, good. How to Write a Play is hosted by Mike Bartlett and Alex Polk. Editing and music is by Hannah Gallardo Parsons, and it's produced by the Old Fire Station, Oxford. Please support us by giving five-star ratings and reviews wherever you get your podcasts to help us get seen by more theatre makers. This show receives no exterior funding. If you'd like to support the work of the Old Fire Station, please donate at oldfirestation.org.uk.